and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast with host Gemma Soul. In this episode, I'm delighted to be introducing a seasoned executive and non-executive director, Samantha Barber. Samantha is a long-standing member of the School for CEOs faculty. Her language skills have enabled her to lead a successful career both in the UK and Europe, and she's currently a non-executive director at Iberdrola, the global energy company headquartered in Madrid in Spain. And she's been a member of the board there since 2008. As well as this, Samantha is a non-executive director at Scottish Water, the board of which she joined in 2017. And she also chairs the Scottish Ensemble, a pioneering string orchestra based in Glasgow, but with a global reputation. In this interview, we explore Samantha's leadership journey. In particular, what it felt like getting her first CEO role at the age of 30. The challenges she faces today around gender and meritocracy on boards. And a personal passion of mine, we discuss Samantha's linguistic skills and how being multilingual influences her leadership style. I hope you enjoy the episode. Samantha Barber, welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast. Good morning and thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Samantha, I'd like to talk a little bit about your executive experience. You became a CEO very young and you also now are a plural non-executive. So tell me about your first um, experience as a, as a senior executive. Well, that's actually quite interesting, Gemma, because... I was really fortunate that I was 30 when I became CEO at Scottish Business in the community. And at the same time, within six months, I also became a non-executive director with um, a charity in Glasgow, which supported young people who were isolated from school called Right Track. And a charity had been going for a very long time. And so I became a CEO and a non-executive director when I was 30. And both positions actually helped me develop in both roles because it gave me the insight of being a non-executive director and seeing things from the board perspective whilst at the same time being the CEO and preparing and presenting to the board obviously um, in board meetings. And I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes Samantha because I turned 30 uh, about six weeks ago and I cannot thank you and I cannot imagine being the CEO of an organization um, you know having that level of, res- of responsibility and there aren't that many 30 year old CEOs around so how did you feel being a chief executive at such a young age did it did it did you notice that you were kind of one of few I had spent the previous four years, five years working in Brussels and working with people who were older than me, but in a similar position to me. So I think I'd been used to being relatively young to do the job that I was doing. So in some ways, I didn't think about it. I also think I was so determined and I really wanted that position that as far as I was concerned, you know, I could do it. And my age is not something that ever bothered me. And interestingly, I did join the board of Ibadrola when I was 39. So again, I seem to have uh, occupied quite senior positions um, at a probably slightly unusually young age. 
Mm. And tell me more about your non-executive experience, because that's obviously something that you've built on over the years. You're now plural non-exec. Uh, so was that, did you get that flavour at 30 and think, actually, this is, this is a, a, the way that I want to influence and the way that I want to work rather than staying in an executive role for longer? I think one of the things I've always realised that I'm really interested in strategy and leadership and vision and purpose. And when you're a non-executive director, you are very much operating in, in the strategic area you know, within a board. And one of the things I would always say to anybody who's interested in becoming a non-executive director, the experience that you can get in a, a charity or a not-for-profit board is invaluable. Because one of the things is that you're learning from your peers around the table. And, and you know, most of the time, and as it should be, you will be sitting around a board table with other non-executive directors who are very experienced in their own field. So you learn a lot from them and you also learn a lot about yourself because really it's about your personal skill set in terms of how you interact with a board, with your colleagues and with, for example, the CEO and other senior executives. And I, I think that it is such an invaluable experience and quite often the challenges within a, a charity, they are complex. It could be that the the needs of the individuals that try to support are complex. The funding's complex. How you manage and deliver services can be complex. So really, it's such a, a, a great way to to give a to make a contribution, but to, to learn in so many ways as well. Yeah, that's it's something that we talk a lot about on our particularly our runway program actually. Yeah. Um, not only to get that experience and help you get that external perspective, but also to help you in your executive role, yes. understand how to engage with your board and how to use them as a, as a resource. And I think what's very important is to understand how to communicate and inform your board as, as a CEO or as executive director, how to communicate and inform your non-executive directors about what's happening in the business. And I think when you see it from both sides, that does help you better prepare and inform the board. Mm -hmm. Samantha, I, I feel I have to take the opportunity to ask you about um, meritocracy and quotas, because there's a lot of debate on whether we should have quotas for um divert to hit diversity targets on on boards what's your experience of that and what's what's your what's your view that's such an interesting question i often get asked to talk about um diversity and what people really mean is they want me to talk about gender yeah because that's effectively what they're saying and my gender, I don't think, has ever been the most interesting thing about me. I think a lot of the time I've been appointed to, you know, senior roles, you know, my gender's never really been the, the factor or the reason I've been appointed. And as I've said, you know, very openly throughout my career, I have been, you know, appointed, promoted, promoted and mentored by men. And I'm very fortunate that there have been many people who have supported me in my career. And quite honestly, the vast majority of them have been men because they were the people in senior roles. So I don't think my gender has ever held me back. 
And I remember once, um, along with another senior business lady, we were in this sort of, I suppose, VIP drinks reception. And uh, this gentleman came over to speak to both of us. We, were, we know each other well, so we were standing talking. And we introduced ourselves and he said, oh, so you both broke in the glass ceiling. And I said, oh, well, we never saw one. And I actually think, I actually found that um, slightly patronizing um, because the assumption is there's always a glass ceiling, whereas that's never been my experience. And it doesn't mean to say that that is not the experience of other women, but obviously I can only talk about my own experience. And when it comes to creating a diverse, diverse board, my number one priority is always, do we have the right cognitive diversity around this board table? And do we have the right skill sets? Do we have the breadth of expertise that we require? But do we have the right cognitive diversity here for what this board needs? And one thing I would say is that when we have, when we have quotas, um, then I feel the focus moves from looking at the skill set and the cognitive diversity aspect. And there's always a risk that you end up creating a board that looks very diverse, but when you close your eyes, everyone sounds the same. And that is of no use to the good functioning and good governance of a board. I'd love to rewind a second to what you were talking about at the beginning you described mentors who'd helped support you through your career who were men and then you described a very different experience mm-hmm. of um a, a man who came across, across as very patronizing so I think what, what advice would you give to men in that position who want to show support to women and um but need to do so in the right way you know, male male ambassadors for gender diversity it's interesting because you're absolutely right. I am absolutely certain that this gentleman certainly had no intention of being patronising whatsoever. Um, and But again, it's, it is that assumption that, you know, women have to break through a glass ceiling that is just, well, for, certainly for me, was not the case. I, I, I think that... I actually feel that sometimes some men can be quite clumsy and they don't need to be and they don't mean to, mean to be. I mean, that's very occasional, has that been my experience? And it is just clumsiness. Um, so I I think um, be less clumsy. <laughs> okay. What about if we look at it from the organisational point of view? So uh, what do recruiters and organisations need to do to try and shift towards meritocracy? Because you've talked about, um, you know, the the trip hazard if you start to look for people who look diverse and then all, all end up sounding the same. So h- how can organisations and recruiters influence that? I think one of the things when you are looking to uh, recruit new board members onto an existing board, what you're really looking for is what does this board need in the future? Where is this board going? What's the current composition like? And what will the composition look like in three, five years time when other NEDs begin to move off as well? And I think you are you are really bringing in people to stre- future proof and strengthen 
your board for the challenges ahead and for the future. And I think that's quite an, that's an interesting angle to look at that through. And when you are, when you put in, I think the, the effort and robustness in the thought process and analysis of how you can strengthen your board and you, and you get that picture as clear as you can, then I think that you then bring in the diversity of talent into the process for recruitment. If, if I was to ask you the same question, Samantha, from the point of view of the candidate, mm -hmm. if you were to, um, if, if you were speaking to a candidate who feels that they've been shortlisted for a role or even offered the role because of what they look like, and they're not convinced that the organisation is bringing them in for the right reasons, what advice would you give to them? Just go and take the opportunity anyway? Or is that, you know, those hazard signs and you should step back? What, what would you say? I, I, I think one of the important things is that our, our recruitment process for an NED position is a two-way process. And you, as a candidate should be challenging and almost not quite interviewing but you have your own process to go through and your own diligence to go through because um, being an, a non-executive director is a very serious responsibility and there are you know reputational risks that can go with that if you do not do your own due diligence so I think that's the the, the first thing I also you know remember um, you know sitting at a lunch in London a number of years ago um, I, and actually there was only a couple of, of us women at, at this lunch and somebody, one of the, the gentlemen there did ask us a question around gender on the boards and, you know, and very openly so. And I said, well, it's interesting because I think there are, are, are many things that I bring to a, a board table, one of which is that I'm a woman, but that's quite far down the list. Mm. And I think that when we put being a woman at top of the list, we actually don't pay service to all the things that that individual is bringing in their skill set and their expertise. And that's what we should be looking at first and foremost. Mm, absolutely. There's one other area of diversity that I'd really like to explore with you, Samantha, and not just because I studied languages at university, yeah. but I know that you're a linguist too. And um, you have a really interesting experience uh, where you were the first non-Spaniard uh, on a board of a Spanish-owned company headquartered in Spain. Um, but let's talk about language first. And how do your skills as a linguist influence your leadership? I think what's interesting, and I've only realised this probably in the, in, in the last decade, is that when you are a linguist, um, people think, first of all, about the fact that you speak in other languages. But what you do first and foremost is you listen in other languages. And one of the most important skills that a good linguist develops first is their ability to listen and their ability to listen in different ways. So what I realize is that, you know, as a linguist quite often, I, I think about how somebody has said something or why somebody has used certain words. That's not cognitive, 
it's not something that I actively think about, but I can tell that in the way that I work when I'm sitting around the board table, be that operating in English or another language, that you, you are just wired to listen, I think, in a different way. And I think that's one of the first things that I have realised. And I also came across a great article at um, INSEAD. Um, it was around about the time that I did the INSEAD programme on leading from the chair for international chairman, which was wonderful. But um, one of the articles published, I can say, was talking about the cosmopolitan mindset. And what they were saying is that people such as ourselves um, have been used to literally arriving in a foreign land, not knowing anybody, not really being able to speak the language and having to really not just make do and get by, but to thrive and, and get on and make a success of it. And actually, when I think back, I spent three years at three different universities in France. I went to work in Brussels. The most formative years from the age of 18 to about 24, I spent almost every year in a different place, having to get to know different people and integrating and connecting with people. And it wasn't until I read this article that I realized there's an awful lot of skills that you develop as a linguist because of the experiences that you have, which are, are, are actually serve you very well when you're working internationally at a, at a senior level. Mm. Uh, how to network, how to understand, how to engage in a way where you're connecting on somebody else's wavelength. And therefore, when I joined the Board of Ibadrola, I, did, I realized that um, it would take time for me to get to know my other uh, colleagues to be able to connect on the same wavelength as them so that the way in which I communicated and the things that I wanted to see would land in the way that I needed them to land mm. and I think that it is it that does not mean that you're completely assimilated into the culture it means that you can connect culturally you're still bringing all the important things about the fact that you know I'm Scottish British European which brings a different dynamic into that board. But unless you can connect on a wavelength, unless you can understand how to structure and position and communicate well in a way that what you contribute lands in the way you need it to land, then quite frankly, you will not be able to make the kind of contribution that you need to make. But I think that it, 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 there's interesting aspects to the, the way your brain's wired as a linguist and also just your experience as a linguist that I think serves us quite well. Yeah, it's so interesting because it really does play beyond being able to communicate in that language, in, in whatever the local language is. It's that cultural sensitivity. And it's also that feeling comfortable in an environment where you don't feel you haven't fully mastered the language yet. So you just have to almost overcompensate by trying to make an effort with people. So it really gets you comfortable with um, speaking with strangers and getting out of your comfort zone and finding relative ease in that, which I think really helps you grow as a person. It does. And I think that I don't think you can achieve a lot operating in your comfort zone. We always need to keep pushing the boundaries, learning, developing. That's how we grow as individuals. 
and and therefore I I'm I'm somebody I'm quite happy to quite happy to plunge into a whole new environment not knowing very much and get on with it mm -hmm. and I think you know that is partly my experience you know when I was younger as a student and I think one of the other things that this cosmopolitan mindset flagged up in this article is about complex decision making and change management so we we're used to change and we're used to dealing with quite complex things as well and therefore we're used to thinking through complex situations and there are and the way we look at risk and how to analyze risk so there's lots in there that I think um, board recruiters don't necessarily see at face value when they see that effectively you are a qualified linguist. Mm, mm. So interesting. In your role as a mentor, you're going to be a role model to a lot of leaders as well. So I have to ask you, and I know you're, you're almost a reluctant role model, Samantha. Um, but who are your role models? Oh, you know, I think it's well. It's really interesting because actually, one is uh, Lady Susan Rice, and she chairs Scottish Water. I've known Susan a very long time, uh, over twenty years. She was on the board of Scottish Business and Community as an NED when I was there. And I, I think, um, you know, just for, it, for me, she is a, a very intelligent, warm woman um, and who, it, it, you know, she, she, she brings, in terms of her leadership roles, she just brings a lot of intelligent insight and thought. And, you know, that for me really epitomizes what we should be doing as leaders. Mm -hmm. And and the other, who's a complete contrast, um, is the, the chairman of Ibadrola, Ignacio Balan. He is a formidable character. He is a man who had a very, very clear vision of how he saw uh, renewable energy being the driving power globally and he was going to put Ibadrola at number one there. You know, and, and you know, 20 years ago, you know, Ibadrola had a, a market cap of about 20 billion and now has one around 70 billion. It's managed to do its eighth acquisition in America um, in 2020. Uh, and he has driven and positioned uh, Ibadrola as an absolute force to be reckoned with. And it is his, you know, sheer drive, determination, uh, his, his leadership. And to have been part of that journey for the last 12 years has been, you know, or is, I should say, uh, an incredible um, experience. Um, and both of those individuals are obviously the chairman of boards I'm on at the moment. Um, they're individuals I've known a long time. They are very, very different in style, really different. Um, in style um, and it, it, it's just it's great to be able to be on board with that kind of leadership. Mm. Fascinating 
Thank you so much, Samantha. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Thank you. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast with me, Gemma Soule, and our guest speaker, Samantha Barber. My last question to Samantha was about her role models. And actually, Samantha's a great role model to me. Okay, yes, we share certain affinities in our passion for language. And I believe we also share some common values in our perspectives of leadership and what good looks like. But the thing that strikes me the most about Samantha was her strong internal locus of control. She knows who she is. She knows what value she can add. And she holds that with a quiet confidence and assertiveness. And this is something that I really admire. If you'd like to learn more about School for CEOs, you can find our website at www.schoolforceos.com. Here you can learn more about us and how we support senior leaders. And you can also find other podcast episodes with a range of brilliant guests. You can also find the podcast across the usual platforms. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Thank you.